I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the program today, Bill Scher. He is a contributor to Washington Monthly and Real Clear Politics, and I call him the Dean of Joe Manchin Journalism. Welcome, Bill. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Bill, what is on Joe's mind? Not Joe Biden, but Joe Manchin. You've covered him extensively during this period of transition and in anticipation of the Biden administration. But what does Manchin want? Uh, the senior senator from West Virginia, former governor of West Virginia, uh, in order to move ahead with some of the Democratic Party and the Biden administration's priorities. Well, I do, I can't promise you that I've I've achieved mind meld with Joe Manchin, so I can't I can't quite predict what he's going to do. Uh, but I do feel that he gives us lots of clues. Uh, some of his statements don't always uh, perfectly line up, so it requires a lot of. Uh, you want to be want to be careful when you're analyzing Joe Manchin. I think people have a tendency to cherry pick his statements. For example, a lot of people heard him say early on he wants an infrastructure bill that is two, three, four trillion. That swirls around social media as Joe Manchin wants four trillion. Therefore, he won't bother with a bipartisan compromise with Republicans. You can forget about 60 votes. He'll do reconciliation. But he said lots of things in the past couple of weeks that, that make it clear that that's not exactly where he's at, that he's willing to do something smaller as a first chunk, that he's concerned about paying for it, not doing deficit spending, and that he very much wants to at least try to get Republican support and has said as much that we need to go through regular order go to committee, have a markup uh, to see what's possible with 60 votes. So what we don't know is how what is Manchin's bottom line? Is there a number that's too low for him? And we don't know how far we have to go with bipartisan negotiations before he says, okay, we, we did our best. Now we can do reconciliation. Now, when does Manchin pull the plug? We don't know that. I think you describe Manchin's indecisiveness, noncommittal nature very astutely. You can go back to the second Trump impeachment and his appearances on different media, local West Virginia, Fox News, mainstream, left-leaning, if you will, to say you know, different things about impeachment. Uh, and so there is an element of the Manchin persona that is very much of a flip-flop. Um, I was for it before I was against it or vice versa. Um, but we know that he has come out against D.C. statehood, abolishing the filibuster. So against any measure of filibuster reform. So those are are clear lines in the sand for him. But is that malleable? Should we take it at face value? Or could he end up voting for statehood? And could he end up in narrow conditions uh, voting to break a filibuster? I mean, a politician can always change his or her mind. So I, I never want to go as far as to say, since he said X, therefore, 
you know, why will never happen? You know, things can always change. But I do think he's gone pretty far out on a lot of limbs that would make it hard for him to turn on a dime. Uh, He has made very clear that he wants to be bipartisan. That he thinks it would be dangerous if the if the Senate ran on a wholly partisan basis, uh, and and by saying things like "I'm not for DC statehood," "I'm not for $15 minimum wage," uh, "I'm not for a voting rights bill that's partisan," saying that has has weight. It it's a signal to the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that if you rush those sorts of bills to the floor. Some people thought, hey, let's rush those bills to the floor. Let's invite the filibuster. Let's show the country that Republicans are unwilling to support these popular items, and that will build up more pressure to get rid of the filibuster or to have a talking filibuster, which Manchin himself has had some interest in. When Manchin says, I'm not for this bill or that bill, he's telling Chuck Schumer, If you put this on the floor, it's not going to get 50. It's going to get less than 50. And so it's not going to help you reform the filibuster. It's going to embarrass Democrats that Democrats are not unified. And so you have not seen Chuck Schumer do that. He has not rushed those bills to the floor. He has been careful to let the bipartisan negotiations in terms of infrastructure and also police reform right now, he's letting those play out before making those types of decisions. Uh, and I think that has to do with what clues and what signals Manchin has been sending. And how much is it about Manchin signals versus cinema signals? Do you think the signals matter equally? I mean, they would if Cinema gave more signals. <laughs> she doesn't talk as much as Manchin does. Just for folks, now Cinema has said, like Manchin, she does not want to get rid of the filibuster. She has said she thinks all business of the Senate should be done with sixty votes, which is somewhat contradicted by the fact that she did vote for the rescue plan through reconciliation. Uh, but she hasn't been, uh, I, and I believe she is not. She's not co-sponsored DC statehood. She's not co-sponsored the PRO Act, which is a labor rights, organizing rights bill. Uh, she has not, she's said that she's not for $15 minimum. Uh, there might be a couple other things that, that, that I'm forgetting. So she's, she sent those types of signals as well. And, and I agree. So to that extent, if Schumer knows he does not have 50 for something, that is great disincentive to not put that particular bill on the floor. And that is true for several of the bills that have cleared the House so far in these first hundred plus days. Do you think that ultimately with the restrictive voting legislation that's passed in Georgia, now Florida, likely Texas and other states soon, that that will give um, Schumer what he needs for Manchin support when it comes to some, some HR1 formulation? Um, some kind of voting rights advancement legislation. Well, there are certain bills that Chuck Schumer has said he will at some point put them on the floor as is. He has said that about voting rights. He has said that about the gun background check bill. And he has said that about the Equality Act, which is the LGBT rights bill. He hasn't said when he would do it, but he has he has made that promise. And so I take Schumer at his word that at some point, even if there's not a bipartisan compromise, even if it means there isn't 50 Democrats, he will feel obligated to say that he did it. So 
the blame wouldn't be on him for bottling those things up. So uh, voting rights is clearly a high priority item for a lot of Democrats. Uh, But Joe Manchin has said this type of bill has to be bipartisan or else it's going to tear the country apart further. Uh, So that puts some onus on Manchin to figure out, is there some kind of voting rights bill that could actually get 60 votes and make it unnecessary for Chuck Schumer to put H.R. 1 on the floor and come up short? Uh, I would argue that such a bill does potentially exist, even though a lot of people think that's crazy talk. Uh, And I do think more and more people are starting to recognize that the partisan assumptions about what various provisions would do to each party are not actually backed up by data. We have evidence that voter ID laws have had a a counterintuitive effect. Republicans push them, and they've said openly that they do so, trying to make it harder for Democrats to vote. They've been pretty open about that fact. But time and time again, it it has a boomerang effect. The Democrats get so outraged that they organize tenfold and they overcome the obstacle, which is one of the reasons why Joe Biden flipped Georgia and Arizona, one of the reasons why Democrats took back the House in in 2018. These things have not worked as Republicans uh, have intended. Uh, So it's that kind of thing where if both parties internalize, wait a second, these things don't work the way we think they do. And maybe if we pass X or Y, it's not going to give one party an advantage over the other. If they understand that and accept it, it's a lot easier to come up with a bill that actually can get 60 votes. One of the leading advocates of the HR1 legislation and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, who we recently hosted, said that she is confident that the Democrats will have the votes um, to enact some measure of voting rights protection. I mean, if you were to estimate at this point what the probability of that is, what would you say? I, I take, I generally just follow what people say. You know, I try not to be too much of a mind reader. As it stands, Joe Manchin has said, I am not going to pass a voting rights bill that is not bipartisan. Uh, I mean, he could flip, I guess. You know, I mean, I, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a mystic, but if I'm the guy doing legislative strategy, I'm going to take that at face value and come up with a plan to satisfy that. And to me, that means if, if Democrat, I mean, I've seen Republicans signal that voter ID laws are going to help us win elections, even though I think it's provably wrong. They keep saying that. Uh, I've heard Democrats, you know, in particular Jim Clyburn say, you know, Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema better get rid of the filibuster if they want to stay in the majority to pass voting rights legislation which is a signal that you think it's going to help Democrats stay in power. Well, that's not a good talking point if you're trying to get the 60 votes. Uh, and I don't think it is. And I, and I think you can show that it's not actually true. I mean, take, take for example, restoring the rights for felons, uh, which I think a lot of people assume because it disproportionately would help African-Americans. That means it is a net plus for Democrats, but, even though it's disproportionately helpful for African-Americans, most felons are white males. 
non-college white males and non-college white males are primarily Republican voters. Uh, and there's and there's evidence to show that just because you're a felon, it doesn't make you the, 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 the act of being a felon doesn't make you more progressive, doesn't make you more democratic. The, your other attributes are, are still more um, predictive of your voting behavior. So Republicans understood, hey, you're going to net a few hundred thousand votes out of a, a felon enfranchisement. It's not to help us. It's to help. It's going to help you more than us. Maybe you get 60 votes for that kind of thing. That, so I think Democrats need to learn how to sell it so they can actually get the votes needed to make this a bill that gets to Biden's desk. How much do you think that that Manchin and Cinema care about being in the majority? Um, I mean, they have to care. I mean, I, I can't believe they don't care at all because clearly when you're in the majority, you get to do more stuff. I think they both want to legislate. They don't want to be passive bystanders you know, voting for one filibuster after another. They want to pass stuff. Uh, I don't know if their calculations are identical. You know, Joe Manchin is someone who has been a centrist his whole life, ever since he started in West Virginia politics. He is in his 70s. He may not, may not even run for office again. Uh, and I think, I and this is just my opinion, uh, I think he wants to show that bipartisanship can still work. And he, and he has more latitude to talk about openly because he's in such a red state and may not even run again. So you really can't lean on him to say you have to do this for the party or for yourself, because in his case, it's not really true. Uh, cinema is even harder to to analyze because she doesn't talk as much. Uh, and, uh, you know, her trajectory is stranger because she used to be a Green Party you know, uh, 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 participant. Uh, and she's traveled a long way ideologically for, to where she is today. Uh, and there are people who think that Arizona is not as red as West Virginia. So it doesn't make sense that she's behaving the way that she does. But I can only presume that she is thinking the same way that John McCain did. That Arizona has a lot of quirky, idiosyncratic, centrist type voters. And the way to survive in that state is not by being uh, wholly loyal to the edges of one's party, but to show that you can play in the middle as well. Uh, and that, that's, that's the way she's behaving. Uh, everyone left thinks that she, her calculations don't make sense, but she's the one that's won the state before they haven't. So I can only presume she thinks the way she's playing the game makes sense for where she is, rep- for who she's representing. Moreover, the personalities of Manchin and cinema are highly idiosyncratic in, in, in different ways, manifesting differently. Their motivation to stay in the majority um, can be driven by those idiosyncrasies and, and their own attitude about what will advance the democratic interests or the party faithful and the leadership. And so far, it does not seem like there is really a reconciliation or agreement on what will help Democrats retain their majorities in 2022. I think it's absolutely right. There are two schools of thought here. There is a school of thought that is arguably more dominant in the Democratic Party. It's only getting a, a lot more oxygen, I think, which is you go big. You deliver big policies that people feel in their lives. It is tangible. It is quick. And it even if it doesn't come with cosmetic Republican votes, the average voter does not care. 
And so once you deliver for them, they'll reward you with more electoral victories. That's how the game should be played. Uh, and the Joe Mansions of the world seem to believe, look, you have a majority because I, Joe Manchin, am in West Virginia. You would not have this majority if not for me and for the way I interact with my constituents who are not like the constituents in Delaware or California or in New York. Uh, and uh, if you can't show that you are appealing to a broader swath of Americans, particularly in the Senate, which is skewed towards lower population states, uh, being partisan going big is not going to be sufficient. And I don't know if they take the argument this far. This what I would I would argue perhaps in favor of that line of thinking is it's pretty hard to have a lot of policies that are big and pay off quickly. Most government policies take a longer time before people grow to love them. You know, there are certain things like free checks, which are very quick. So the American Rescue Plan is, is one that has instant payoff. A lot of other things aren't like that. Obamacare was not like that. Infrastructure is not like that. Projects take a long time to get up and running. There are problems with cost overruns. There are problems with healthcare.gov. Uh, maybe the subsidies levels aren't where they should be and need to be adjusted over time. There's all sorts of little things like that that happen with lots of policies. And when you go big and you go partisan, you get open to partisan counterattack. And if the tangible benefit is not readily manifest, then you get the short end of the stick in the next election. Uh, and so that's why I think the mansions of the world say, look, let's not expose ourselves to that kind of backlash, which we've seen uh, in past elections. Let's let's mitigate the possibility for backlash by being as bipartisan as possible. And so there isn't a consensus in the party on those two as those two schools of thought, but Manchin holding the 50th vote and maybe others who also want to, you know, stick, stick their necks out from time to time, even if they're not the majority view of the party, they might dictate the strategy of the party. Ultimately, what do you think would be the most helpful strategy for the Democrats to preserve their majorities in 2022? The New York Times reported within the last week about a series of retirements or uh, folks who are leaving their positions in Congress to pursue state office. Um, uh, you know, there, there had been, I think, a conventional, not unconventional wisdom that it was quite possible for Biden in the wake of the Trump administration and the events of January 6th and, and being the distinctive personality that he is as a first-term president to actually make gains in 22 rather than the traditional losses. Uh, and I think that maybe there was some wishful thinking there, but I don't think it's unconventional wisdom necessarily that that's still plausible. So in your judgment, you know, based on the reporting and analysis you've done, what would be the conditions in which the Democrats retain their majorities or grow their majorities in 22? I'm literally writing that piece right now. I'm actually stopping my writing of it to talk to you. Um, but understand the challenge here. We've had 36 midterm elections since Reconstruction, and only three times has the president's party gained seats. And only one other time was the loss less than five. And, and five is the magic number for 2022 for Republicans. So the only times this has happened where there was a gain is 1934 for FDR, 
1998 for Bill Clinton and 2002 for George W. Bush. And that fourth time when, it, when the loss was less than five was JFK in 1962. And there is a common thread through all of those four elections. They all were in the midst of crisis. FDR did well in 34 in the middle of the Great Depression, his first two years in office, getting the reward for what he did with the New Deal. Uh, 1998, the economy is booming. Republicans move towards an impeachment inquiry the month before the election. The average voter says, that's insane. The economy is great. Why are you trying to kick Bill Clinton out of office? He gets a spike in the, in, in the polls and, and a sympathy vote that helps Democrats. 2002, post 9-11, national security crisis. For your younger listeners out there, in 2002, Republicans were considered the National Security Party. Not so much anymore, but that's what it was back then. Uh, and so they got rewarded for that. 62, JFK, month before the election, Cuban Missile Crisis. JFK gets a 13-point boost out of the resolution of that crisis in October. That helps him stave off major losses. So maybe in 2022, Biden's handling of the pandemic and the relief got into the American Rescue Plan, maybe that carries over into November 2022. Not implausible. I wouldn't say it's a guarantee because, you know, maybe, maybe the crisis is behind us and people have moved on and they're complaining about something else. Or maybe the crisis hasn't moved on and we haven't reached herd immunity and there's still variants circulating and uh, people are still fighting over mask wearing and school reopenings. And so Biden's getting the blame that things aren't better. Uh, so I, you can't know. But if there is a way for Biden to buck that trend, I think so. One, it is a good crisis management. And I think related to that is, I mean, why is it that usually the president's party does come out short on midterms? Well, you're governing, you're compromising, you're struggling with gridlock. Things are not as rosy as people thought it might be in the campaign. And so your base is deflated and your opposition is unified. Can we have an unusual circumstance where the Democrats are unified in 2022 and the Republicans are divided? As it stands today, that's what's happening. Republicans are divided right now and Democrats are unified. So if that dynamic sustains over the next year plus, then, yeah, the Democrats will buck the trend of history. Uh, and to, to go back to your initial question, how do you get there? Is it by going big or is it by compromising? You can make the argument either way, and perhaps the Democrats can do both things. They did it one way with the rescue plan, and they could add to that with a bipartisan infrastructure bill. If you got 10% Republicans to do that, even if it was not as big as Democrats want, some of those Trumpy Republicans might be angry that the Mitt Romneys and the Shelley Moore Capitos and the uh, Susan Collinses you know, betrayed their party and gave Biden a big win. And they're, they're going to do that. And Donald Trump isn't even on the ballot. Well, I'm going to stay home. Uh, so there's a way perhaps to satisfy both strategies and achieve that net result of a unified Democratic Party and a divided Republican Party. Final question, Bill. Also, what are those conditions when it comes to the down ballot issues and candidates, because the prerequisite for the national success that you're describing and leveraging that for midterm wins uh, means that you have candidates who are the John Testers and the Joe Manchins who resonate with their states and who will win. Um, that said, the map in 2022 is more favorable for the Democrats than it had been in you know, the last two or three contests, 
Um, they're talking about, you know, winds in states that are potentially more purple than red. Um, but what about that factor of, of, of the candidates and the, the local dynamics that will make it possible? Uh, because we know if it were not for Georgia, the conditions in, in Maine, for instance, or in North Carolina would not have carried that majority for the Democrats. It's an interesting question because you look at 2018, you do not have a lot of examples of, you know, Bernie Sanders style progressives winning those purple seats that took back the house. They were much more moderate and moderate as a relative term. It's not like they were promoting deficit reduction and, you know, Simpson Bowles commission austerity. Uh, They just weren't going as far as single payer and things of that, that nature. Uh, those types of candidates are who won in 2018, who won the House in the first place for the Democrats. And even though some of those moderates lost in 2020, enough of them did not lose and kept their seats for them to hold the majority, uh, however tenuously. Uh, now, you do have this Georgia example where you know John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock did not run to the middle. Uh, they weren't far left. But they probably ran more to the left than you might have expected a Democrat in Georgia to run. Uh, and they still did win. Now, it's a bit of an a, uh, idiosyncratic situation. It was a runoff. So the turnout patterns might not be the same for the runoff as it might be in a midterm election. Uh, but it does raise the question, can you, in a southern state where there is uh, a healthy a proportion of African-American Democrats and African-Americans, mind you, are not necessarily far left voters. They're they're They can be pretty moderate and pragmatic uh, as Joe Biden proved winning South Carolina's primary uh, in the, in, in 2020. Uh, but is there a way to run sort of progressive on race issues, uh, mainstream democratic economically, not too far to the left, not full-blown democratic socialist. Uh, can you win can you win North Carolina like that in 2022? There's an open state there. Uh, uh, and there's also a couple upper uh, Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, that are going to be in play for, for 2022. Uh, how was the exact best kind of candidate for that? I mean, I don't think it's quite as cut and dry as being firmly moderate or firmly progressive, but it requires a certain finessing of some of the more uh, sensitive subjects, I think, to win in a more purple area. And so you want to draw from those case studies, not sure to pick your data, draw from all those case studies to figure out who the right kind of model is. Bill Scher, contributor to the Washington Monthly and Real Clear Politics. Thank you so much for your insight today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.